Okay, the passage on which the sermon is based is Luke chapter uh, 24. I think it's safe to say that the ascension is an undervalued event for most Christians and for most churches. Uh, We don't have, well, we don't have uh, ascension bunnies or ascension baskets. We don't have ascension trees or ascension, you know, presents. Uh, I mean, yet ascension matters every bit as much as Christmas and Easter. For without the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, there would be no good news. And yet, for some reason, we were talking about this at community group this week, and we don't even quite understand why, but for some reason, the ascension has never really seemed to occupy the imagination of, of Christians. Um, you know, one of my favorite illustrations to capture why the ascension is so important, you see Obi-Wan Kenobi here, the original Star Wars movie, New Hope. Uh, he's in that uh, end-of-movie lightsaber battle with Darth Vader and in the Death Star, and Luke is anxiously watching from a distance in the hangar. And at the end of the battle, you know, Obi-Wan speaks those famous words. He says, you can't win, Darth, for if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And then, you know, he, he lifts his, head, his hand above his head, and the red lightsaber, you know, splices him, and, and poof, he, he vanishes, and his life returns to the Force. That quote, what Lucas is doing there, he's drawing, you know, very much uh, from an ascension theme. Like, the loss of Jesus' bodily presence on earth actually makes it possible for his power to be, you know, unleashed throughout the world. Luke, when we, we read the Gospels, um, we see, you know, Jesus doing powerful things, raising people from the dead, multiplying loaves and fish, feeding 5,000 out of, of nothing. And we think, well, he's very powerful, but it's nothing compared to what happens when he is finally, you know, seated in heaven at the right hand of the, of the Father, and his power is distributed throughout the earth. I, you know, I, maybe it's a little, you know, corny to refer to Star Wars, but, but it's really that same idea, that same theme. So let's read our passage, Luke 24, 36. And we just read Acts 1. There's really two accounts of the ascension written by Luke. Luke's Acts 1, Luke 24. It was that important to him that he recorded it twice. Jesus stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled, and why, why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, then he asked them to prove it, that, you know, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high, which happens next week on Pentecost. Then verse 50, the the ascension. When When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple. 
praising God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to see the glory and the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, on this Ascension Sunday, that we too might be uh, clothed with power and could speak of his saving um, grace to, to all who come into contact with us. Bless us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Westminster Abbey, London, there sits a Gothic-style oak armchair. It has four gilded lions, which serve as the legs, a high back, and a compartment underneath for a special stone. I think the stone was actually returned to Scotland, where it originated. But the chair that I am describing, and the chair that is pictured here, is King Edward's chair. It's also referred to as the coronation chair. It was commissioned by Edward I in the year 1297. Uh, He paid a carpenter then a a princely sum of 100 shillings, and since its creation, all the way at the end of the 13th century, every British monarch has been crowned while sitting on the chair except two. Um, How many of you, just kind of curious, how many of you watched the coronation ceremony for King Charles just recently? See, Tyrone, you watched it. Well, we don't have, okay, a few. I see, we don't have a whole lot of, like, British royalty people, I guess, around here that, that like that kind of stuff. I've actually, I didn't watch it. I feel almost embarrassed that I didn't watch it because my friends who did said that the service was truly, it was, it was otherworldly in beauty. It was, it was masterful. It was truly majestic, or so they, so they thought. I didn't see Charles' coronation. I have watched the videos uh, from 1952 when Queen um, Elizabeth was crowned in, you know, Westminster Abbey. And at the very end of the service, the Archbishop of Canterbury comes forward, and he holds a crown above her head and very slowly, you know, places it atop. And at that moment, when the crown is finally on her head, you hear this exclamation that comes out from everyone— God save the queen. And there's just that roar of all of the people in the, the cathedral. Everyone cries aloud, and, and it's this beautiful celebratory moment when she has been seated in the crown, in King Edward's chair, and the crown is on her head. I assume the same thing happened with, with Charles. Well, do you realize? He did, thank you. We have confirmation. Did you realize that the ascension was Jesus' coronation ceremony? It was. And again, I find, it, I find it very strange that in our Christian imagination, like we've pictured the, the baby Jesus in, in the, um, you know, lying in the manger so many times. Or we've pictured Jesus, the stricken Jesus, hanging on the cross, dying for our sins. We've pic- we pictured the risen Jesus on Easter morning, you know, talking to Mary. But the truth be told, we, have, we haven't pictured this like very much at all, have we? The, the coronation ceremony of the king of the universe? Why? Well, I mean, probably one of the reasons is because it's not actually described and recorded for us in the Bible itself. We don't have, you know, a gospel of heaven that, that shows us this picture. But I want you to know that it is very much, very much implied by the fact that the king was seated at the right hand of the Father. We need to imagine what that sounded like. We need to imagine what it, what it looked like when the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, enters into the throne room of heaven. And there are like 10 million angels, you know, singing aloud the Gloria, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And, you know, their voices are like the roar of many waters. And Jesus, you know, enters 
I, I got, like, what is he wearing? I, I kind of see him in some kind of robe of, of majesty. It's, um, his appearance reflects his, his glory, which transcends human comprehension. And then when he sits down, and a crown that is so indescribable is finally placed on our Savior's head, um, the head of a man who still has holes in his hands and his feet from the sacrifice on the cross, all of heaven at that moment quakes at the exclamation of these words, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and riches and strength. It's like that all of heaven says, long live the king. And it turns out to be the king who will live forever. You know, our, our man, he's there. Our man, our Jesus, like the Jesus that you, that you so dearly love, that man, that man is seated on heaven's throne. Uh, I, I just have to apologize to you because I wish I, A, had a better imagination to imagine it myself, and B, had, you know, a greater command of the English language to be able to describe it to you. Because, I've, I mean, I, I wrote, it, wrote down those words, and I, just, I feel so paltry. It's like, imagine that scene. Revelation 3.21, these words. These are the words of Jesus. I was victorious, and I sat down with my Father on his throne. Again, friends, that is the moment of all moments. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But the moment of all moments is actually not, it's not Christmas morning, and it's not the cross, and it's not even Easter morning. It's that moment when he sat down with my father on his throne. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, John has a visionary encounter with the ascended Jesus, and he describes him using these different figurative um, uh, terms. They're not literal, but each descriptor captures who is this ascended Lord that we love, and so you try to picture it. Uh, these are John's words. He has he- a head and hair white like wool. Can you see that? White like wool, like pure wisdom, absolute perfect wisdom. Eyes that are like flame of fire. Eyes with this like all-penetrating gaze. Feet like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze feet. Ah, like stability, strength, um, a voice like many waters, an awe-inspiring voice that is both authoritative and comforting. Stars in his right hand, so the stars in the book of Revelation refer to angels. Stars in his right hand means that he's in charge of all of, of the most beautiful of all of God's creation. The angels, the angelic realm, it's all his. Then a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, a double-edged sword. The idea, it's sharp on both sides so that it can divide this way and that way. You know, it emphasizes the penetrating nature of Jesus' words that are capable of dividing good from evil. And then the last one, do you remember the descriptor? His face shines like the sun. Like just just as the sun is the most radiant and powerful source of light on earth, his face is so intensely bright like overwhelming in its glory and its splendor. Like that is the king that is seated on the throne. And that king blends together all of the characteristics that we wish we had in leaders on earth, right? (laughs) We wish we had any political leader here that was like that, a true and ultimate king. The fact is, friends, um, none of us have ever heard 
that voice that sounds like the rushing of many waters. And none of us have ever seen the face that shines in blinding brilliance. Like, what I want you to realize is it's all true. It's all true, and it's all there. And it's all there at the coronation. And it's, it's all there true above right now. Right now. And one of the reasons we meet for worship every Sunday is to try to, to lift our, our measly eyes heavenward, to try and gain a glimpse of that. I mean, when I do the Sursum Corda at the table, and I say, you know, lift up your hearts, and you say, we lift them up to the Lord, you are basically, you're affirming an ascension idea, that we are lifting the eyes of our hearts heavenward to try and capture the site that is the site of, of all sites. So, yes, uh, number one, the ascension is his coronation ceremony. Here's a second reason why Jesus ascended. Something I find interesting, so we're going to go from king to priest. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, not an easy book to read, one of the, the things you'll notice about the, um, the sacrifices was that atonement for sin usually wasn't simply made when an animal lost its life, when blood was shed. That's normally the way we think about it, and in some of the instances, that was true. But usually, the atonement sacrifice included one more step. Anybody remember what that step is or know what that step was? You would take the carcass of the sacrificial animal, and you would do what on the altar? You would burn it. And and essentially, think about it, metaphorically, it is, it is the smoke that is rising, that is ascending from the altar, ascending up into heaven. And it is only then, as the smoke of the animal ascends heavenward, that the sacrifice is accepted as it, is enter, as it enters into heaven. Well, Hebrews is the book in the New Testament that um, focuses on how Jesus he fulfills the role of a priest, and we sang about it in our last song. But in Hebrews, you see the same theme at play, that atonement for our sins was not simply accomplished on the cross. It wasn't only there that the lamb was sacrificed. Basically, the priest had to take that sacrifice into, well, curiously enough, heaven is pictured not only as a throne room, but also as a tabernacle, as this priestly space. The tabernacle was where the children of Israel would worship in the desert. Uh, the priest would go in once a year and, uh, and make atonement for the people's sins. And so, you know, ascension is kind of like the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross. It's being taken up into heaven, and then the priest in heaven takes it into the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle itself, and there makes atonement. And who is the priest in heaven? <laughs> it turns out it's the king who is in heaven too. So the lamb is the priest who is the king. And so these themes are all kind of getting unpacked in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7, 27, uh, we're, we're told that, you know, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, for he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And I think the offering himself here is actually the sense of the priest coming in and, and offering himself as, 
as the atonement. Another example of this would be Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of God. I don't know if you're a person who... um, struggles to believe that you're acceptable in the sight of God. Uh, I've met some Christians who I feel like they just have a strong sense of assurance, a strong sense that Jesus has forgiven them and they are made right. I've met many others, though, who, who, who feel like they have a profound self-consciousness and sense that, like, if, if I was inspected, I could not survive a close examination. Like, like, a sense that if God really knew um, who I was, really knew what was wrong with me, really knew what was in my mind, really knew the motives of my heart, really knew what I was like, um, I would be rejected by God because if you knew those things about me, you would definitely reject me. I've met a lot of people that feel that way. And so, you know, how do you give assurance to somebody who's really struggling? I think it's the same thing as I said a moment ago. You you lift up the eyes of your heart to see the priest as he enters into the tabernacle taking his sacrifice to atone for your sins, for your sins. You know, the thing that I loved most about Tim Keller, um, he died Friday of pancreatic cancer. And, you know, he, I told a few of my pastor friends that he's the closest kind of like hero, <laughs> honestly, on earth that, that I've had that capital H hero, somebody I never met before, but I had the deepest of admiration for. What I loved about Tim Keller was he had an uncanny ability to just help me see Jesus as the Lamb of God who took away my sins, and to see the grace of God in the gospel. Like, you know, his most famous statement that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And it's like, it's that idea that, that I'm a mess and you're a mess. We're all catastrophic um, messes. And yet, in Christ, the Lamb Priest is the one who has made us right. And so on Sundays, we lift up our eyes into heaven to see that, to be reminded of that. So number two, yes, the ascension made it possible for Jesus to complete atonement. Uh, the third reason for ascension— I'm going to go back to that Obi-Wan Kenobi theme earlier on, but look with me in verses 51 and 52. He's with his disciples. He, he was blessing them, and, and then it says he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They're full of joy. You look at these disciples. Their best friend on earth had just left them. Um, you know, the captain of the team <laughs> has just been subbed out of the game, and yet their eyes aren't bloodshot with tears, and they're filled with joy, and they go into the temple praising God every day. Why? Why could they be so full of, of joy when they were losing Jesus? Because I tell you, if I could have held on to Jesus, I probably would have. And the reason, maybe, is because they, they took Jesus' word at, at his word when he said in John chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you, it is for your good that I go away. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. And of course, the advocate is the Bible's way of speaking about Jesus' spirit that comes and, 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 and fills our lives. You know, at first glance, the ascension seems like a terrible, terrible strategy for the church. You know, the best player on our team gets subbed out of the game in the very first quarter. You know, our best player is gone. The game is just getting started. But after the ascension, you notice a transformation that takes place in the lives of these disciples. These guys, it's not like they had a whole lot of courage beforehand. And it's not like they had a whole lot of natural charisma beforehand. But once the advocate comes and fills them, they really are like new men. Um, you know, using a sports analogy again, you know, Jesus, it's almost like Jesus turns the junior high basketball team into a squad of NBA all-stars. And like these 12 disciples who were, you know, JV, um, they turn into 12 Michael Jordans because it's like all the courage and the eloquence and wisdom that Jesus possessed on earth, they start possessing because the Spirit comes to possess them. The Spirit fills them. Um, and with Jesus' Spirit in them, you know, they fly out into the world as golden-tongued preachers, um, as men who care for the poor, and they announce that the kingdom of God has, has come and God's new world has begun. Um, all of that happens by virtue of the Spirit. So number three, the, the ascension essentially distributes Jesus' power to all the earth, like not just to one place, but to everyone uh, um, who are his disciples on earth. For a moment, let's just say, uh, run this thought experiment with me. Let's just say that Jesus was still on earth today. He never ascended. Um, where would he be on earth? My guess is he might be in some place like Kampala, Uganda. That is the capital of Uganda. Uh, we know that, you know, African Christianity has has just exploded, and it's way more vibrant, I think, than we would say American Christianity is. So no, he would not be um, in the United States, but he might be in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, If Jesus was living in Kampala, do you think you would take a pilgrimage to go and see him? Yes, I would, absolutely. And if you took a pilgrimage to go see him, would you want to leave? Probably not. Um, But the problem is, if Jesus is located spatially in one place, he's limited to that one place. He can't be in Bogota at the same time. He can't be in Bangkok. He can't be in Beijing. But since he's now seated in heaven on the throne, his great gift is spread to believers, to his people, so that in essence, the ascension makes Jesus uh, go everywhere, go anywhere, wherever he wants to be. He can be. Um, I love the Harry Potter stories, and one of my favorite parts of the, the Harry Potter universe is the invisibility cloak. The idea that you could throw this over yourself and, you know, run through the hallways of Hogwarts Castle and go anywhere that you wanted to and not be seen. And that is what happens with Jesus of the Ascension, is he, I can just imagine him, you know, donning Harry Potter's invisibility cloak, and he goes through the twisted corridors of rat-infested prison camps to visit persecuted Christians in North Korea today. And he goes through um, hospital wards, and he visits bedridden Christians confined to a sterile hospital bed or confined to a dark bedroom. Um, he's, he's able, by virtue of his ascension, to pour his love into, into the hearts of people everywhere. And then likewise— you know, he can sort of 
put the invisibility cloak over us and take us wherever he wants us to be. Remember the words, uh, the famous words that were spoken of the 16th century nun, uh, Teresa of Avila. She said this, these beautiful words, Christ has no body on earth but yours. You know, yours are the eyes with which he looks compassionately on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands which, with which he blesses all the world. And he does that because he pours out his spirit in you to direct you where, where to go. You know, many times I don't feel like a very empowered spiritual man. Um, like, I feel like if the Holy Spirit is inside of me, I should feel a whole lot more power. I should feel kind of like Superman, and I don't. But maybe that's not the right way to see his empowerment. Maybe his empowerment is seen in the places that he takes you that you would never have gone on your own. Like, you never would have gone to visit the prisoner. You never would have gone um, to be with the, the, uh, the, the, the guy who, like, tomorrow morning, who I'm going to be with, who had a DUI and is getting sentenced. And he, he doesn't have any family here, friends here. But I'm going to be beside him so that he's not alone. And, you know, when you see, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you see Christ taking you to new places that you and your selfishness would never go, then, you know, the ascended Christ is at work and he is empowering you. Okay, let me finish. I just want you to consider finally the words that Luke used in Acts to describe the ascension in Acts 1 verse 9. Um, I want you to get the picture of this. What did the ascension look like from this vantage point? As he said these words, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them, um, hid him from their sight. So what is your mental picture? Is it kind of like my mental picture? Jesus starts like flying upwards, up, up, up he goes, like a helium balloon, and he gets to say like a thousand feet above the ground, and, and he's getting smaller and smaller, and, and up, up, up he goes, maybe he's up to like 10,000 feet, and he's a little tiny speck up at 10,000 feet, and then finally, you know, he's lost in some cumulonimbus cloud high up in the air. Is that your picture of the ascension? That's always kind of Anya's shaking her head no. (laughs) Well, that was mine, and it's simply not correct, because the cloud that's being referenced here is probably not a puffy white, you know, cumulonimbus um, above Jerusalem. It's most likely the cloud of glory, the, the glory cloud. You know, that's what God led the children of Israel with a, pu- a pillar of fire and a, a cloud. And so the idea is this, this cloud designated, designated the close presence of God. You know, God, Jesus is like going up into the glory of heaven. Um, more than likely, when Jesus ascended, he climbed like 50 to 100 feet And then he disappeared into glory. That's what he's saying. And if that's the case, then this is the case. What we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension itself is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth, in other words, are, though very different, not far away from one another. That's, you know, picking up on a theme in last week's sermon too, right? They're not very uh, far away from one another. God's space and ours interlock and intersect in a whole variety of ways, even while they retain, for the the moment at least, their separate and distinct identities and roles. One day they will be joined in quite new, 
a new way, open and visible to one another, married together forever. Jesus is in heaven, ruling the whole world, and he one day will return to make that rule complete. But that place is not very far away from us right now. You know, the ascension is 40 days after Easter, so I think ascension was like Thursday of this past week. Um, Was there anything else significant in the Bible that took place in Jesus' life after 40 days? We talked about this um, with some friends recently. It was his temptation in the wilderness. And at the end of those 40 days, Satan came to him and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of these, uh, I will make it yours. I can make all your dreams come true. Like, here are the kingdoms of the world. I'll give these to you. Just bow down and worship me. 40 days after Easter, um, what has God, Jesus received from his father? He receives the true gift of all of the kingdoms of the world as he's seated on the Father's throne. Like, the very thing that that Satan had falsely promised him, he's actually given um, by his Father. And one day he will return to make his rule complete. In the meantime, he sends us out as his ambassadors to speak good news to all people, uh, to to demonstrate his rule by caring for the poor and the vulnerable, um, and by becoming a, a new and gracious family that's carried on by the powerful spirit of Jesus Christ that is at work among us. Amen.